When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, if you haven't heard of Visible, well, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. Use promo code STUFF. 20 to receive $20 off your first month for listening to this podcast. Switch now at Visible.com. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh, and Chuck's on the line. Jerry's here, too, and we're about to get jiggy with it. About Shakespeare. (laughs) Can I caveat this out of the gate? I guess. (laughs) So the more we dug into this, uh, you know, I was an English major. We talked very briefly when I was in college about Shakespeare's authorship. Right. And I thought, hey, this would be a fun little semi-easy episode. (laughs) And uh, the more we dug into it, the more this onion unfolded. It's quite an onion. The, I'm this blooming onion unfolded layer <laughs> by crispy, delicious layer. For all of our uh, Australian listeners, that's what we think you guys eat every night. Every night. Uh, to the point where I was almost like, you know, is this a two-parter? Is, I mean, a, you could probably do a 10-part episode on this. Oh, yeah. It's so dense. So I just want to caveat this for people that know a lot about Shakespeare authorship and saying this is a, a pretty broad overview of, of the high points uh, of his authorship being questioned because it is dense, baby. It's the kind of thing that like um, extremely intelligent people take on as their like lifelong hobby. It's right. like that. <laughs> We're like, we'll just bust it out in a few days. It'll be fine. Yeah, you know, like how some people are like uh, they they re- research World War II submarine warfare uh-huh. and know everything about it. It's along right. the same lines, but it's even bigger. There's so many people involved, and each side is like, you're so naive to the other. Yeah. And yes, it's true. Like, we could we could turn it, this into a 10-part series, but I think we've got a handle on it enough to present it. I'm feeling okay about it. And then the other thing that sticks out for me, Chuck, is this is one of the few things I've ever come across like this that I am, like, truly agnostic about. I do not have an opinion one way or the other. I I don't know if I do either, actually. Like, I, it's not like I don't care. That's not what I'm saying. Like, I genuinely can see both sides. And the other thing about it is, the more you dig into it, the more you realize, oh, neither side actually has really good evidence to, to support right. their claim. It's all just, they have to get so granular that it really quickly um, goes into the, the world of conspiracy theories uh, pretty quickly. Yeah, I, I saw this video of a guy uh, this wonderful gentleman who knows a lot about it that said like, and here's the golden bullet, which proves once and for all. <laughs> and he made his case and I was like, oh, no, 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 that didn't really prove it once and for all in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Because both sides do things like they get into biographical readings where they're trying to find clues within the text or, yeah. you know, parallels to his life or that kind of thing. And once that starts, it's like, okay, you guys are, you've just completely left the world of objectivity. Yeah. Uh, So what we're talking about, um, if you haven't guessed by now, is this idea that has been around since at least the Mm mid-1800s, maybe before, about the question of whether or not William Shakespeare was uh, the sole author of all of his works. Mm -hmm. And this is Shakespeare from Stratford-on-the-Avon, like that that gentleman that we know became an actor uh, and, you know, writer. Uh, whether or not he was the sole author, whether or not he was a front for some other authors for some of the works. Some people say he didn't write any of them. Some people mm-hmm. said it was uh, various women who weren't allowed to write things at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, are, I saw uh, 66 candidates over the years have been put forward. I saw 80. 
Oh, really? So mm-hmm. there, there you have it. Uh, somewhere between 66 and 80-something. <laughs> right. uh, I know we haven't been accused of writing any of Shakespeare's I work. I don't think so. I didn't come across that in my research. Uh, but it's an interesting literary, I don't even know if I want to call it a mystery, uh, because some people just say, like, no, I mean, of course he wrote it. And he was these outsized personalities, the most famous of the famous our conspiracies are drawn to them. Elvis is still alive. Marilyn Monroe was murdered. Like that happens when you are, you know, one of the the biggest icons in your field, uh, quite often. So some people say this just that's all that it is. But in addition to that, there's a a lack of biographical yeah. documentation sure. that he actually did write those plays, and I think that that's also what allows for people mm-hmm. to say, you know, well, do we really know? Right, or um, that he didn't write them. Like, there's just, it was a time, you know, in the 1500s where there, in 1600s, where, where there just wasn't a ton of great preserved information, and we'll right. kind of talk about a lot of that. So we do know that William Shakespeare did live. He was from, like you said, Stratford-on-Avon. It, it was at the time about a two- to three-day journey from London, about mm-hmm. 100-something miles, I think. And um, he definitely did live. He definitely did exist. That's not a, a question because we do have documentary evidence that this person lived from uh, 1564 to 1616, about 52 years. And depending on when you place his birthday, maybe 52 years on the nose— so we yeah. know he existed. Again, what's at issue, what's being questioned is whether that man, William Shakespeare from Stratford-on-Avon, who went on to become an actor, who went on to become a producer, who worked with the in the Globe Theater, um, whether he was the author of the plays we consider written by Shakespeare. That's what's at, que- at question. Yeah. So like you said, he was a real dude. Uh, he came from a family that was I mean, I kind of read it as a little bit middle class. They certainly were not like upper class nobility types. Mm-hmm. Uh, his father was a was a glover. He wore, or uh, he well, I guess he wore gloves too, but he made gloves. <laughs> Allow pretty, me to demonstrate. <laughs> it'd be pretty weird if he didn't. <laughs> uh, that guy won't even wear his own gloves. <laughs> uh, but he produced these very very fine gloves for well to do people. Um, but he did achieve some. Um, uh, I guess uh, worked his way up the social chain a little bit because eventually he would serve as what's sort of like a mayor uh, in Stratford. And again, while not nobility, like they were fairly well regarded as people. Right. So um, we don't know for certain, but there's a pretty good, there's a much better um, chance than not that because of his father's position in town, because they had some money, like you said, they were middle class, he um, almost certainly would have been educated at the grammar school at Stratford. So what most people think is that that William Shakespeare uh, was educated until about the age of 13. And he would have learned things like Latin. He would have learned history. um, He would have learned some classic literature. He definitely would have been exposed to stuff that whoever wrote Shakespeare's plays would would go on to expound on. Um, So he definitely was... I, don't, I, I can't say that. That's the thing. Like, you really have to be careful what you say about this. I know. I was about to say, so he definitely was educated. We don't know that he was. This is all just a supposition, but it's a pretty good bet. It's a good supposition that he actually was educated. Yeah, and all this, you know, the reason that's important is all of this kind of comes back later as some people say proof that he may not have written this stuff because, like, how could a and one of the main arguments used many times is how could a kid who came from here have known about these military uh, military exploits and the Elizabethan court and uh, all these different languages and all this highfalutin stuff that he wrote about. So mm-hmm. uh, it's important to you know talk about his education, and it seems like he was likely educated pretty well until 13, which, you know, I'm not even sure if that's early or late as far as the time period goes. That, do you know if well, that was like kind of generally it for kids? It was it was uh, in the middle because he could have just as easily not been educated at all. Right, of course. But he also didn't go on to Cambridge or Oxford to right. um, to extend his studies. So he was in there in the middle. They think he was probably educated, not highly educated, but also not you know uneducated. That's that's the key. And that if if there was evidence he had not gone to school, I think that the 
anti-Shakespeare um, people would have a real, like, mark right. in their favor. Yeah. But he has just enough education that you can make the case, right. like, <laughs> no, like, this guy this guy learned about this stuff already, and he could have known about it. And, you know, when you add imagination and natural talent, right. you come up with Shakespeare conceivably. Yeah. Uh, he got married to Anne Hathaway, um, you know. Go ahead and insert Anne Hathaway joke there. <laughs> you know she's a real actor, right? Sure, yeah. Okay. Devil Wears Prada <laughs> and Princess Diaries. And, yeah, I'm um, a big fan. I think Anne she Hathaway's was in great. Uh, Inception. No. no, no, was she? Interstellar. Yes, she did a stellar job in Interstellar. <laughs> Come on. Uh, they got married um, when uh, he was quite a bit younger. She was 26. He was 18. Mm -hmm. She was pregnant, which is probably a little unusual for the time. Uh, they had a daughter named Susanna and then had twins, a uh, boy and a girl twin, uh, and the boy uh, named Hamnet. Not Hamlet, but Hamnet. Yeah, which uh, apparently they've never turned up another use of that name in, uh, in the, at the time. Proof. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, he was 11 years old when he died, uh, and that kind of comes into play later on as well. Um and then there's about a, you know, from 1585 to about 1592, there's about a seven-year gap where we don't know a lot about what was going on with Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. uh, and then he pops up, which a lot can happen in seven years. Yeah. But again, not trying to sway uh, people one way or the other, but you can certainly learn a lot in seven years if you have some big life experiences. Uh, but he pops up in London in 1592 again, as far as the record go. Uh, goes and you know keep in mind a lot of this record before he was known in his lifetime as an author was you know just kind of not flimsy but just not a lot of stuff like various little lawsuits and uh, mortgages and sort of banking records and stuff like that right yeah yeah and and also I mean like that's that's about as much documentation as you would be able to come up with on most people. And it, you can make a case that there's more documentation on Shakespeare than most other people who weren't nobility right. uh, of his era. Oh, and sure. that's, be that's because there's been so much scholarship and study and research into his life that they've turned up, you know, as much as they can. But what they've turned up only amounts to about 500 different pieces of um, documentation of one form or another. Right. Uh, so one of those pieces of documentation uh, in early on in London is a, a pamphlet written by, um, generally believed to be written by this guy named Robert Green. There were some other people that could have possibly written it. But mm -hmm. it's called Green's Groatsworth of Wit. And there's a line where he references Shakespeare in it uh, in a contemporaneous fashion. Is that right? <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, where he kind of takes a shot at him. He says, uh, talks about Shakespeare, says there's an upstart crow uh, in his own conceit, the only Shakespeare scene in a country, uh, which kind of translates <laughs> into he kind of thinks he's the only Shakespeare. Right. Like he thinks he's all that. And, um, it should be noted also, as far as the thievery, that in Aesop's fables, crows uh, would steal the feathers of others. So the yeah. people in the, um, I don't want to say anti-Shakespeare, but the people say that he might not have written these things, says this is a big clue in saying that he might have stolen some of these things. That's why he's referred to as a crow by this other guy. Yeah, but in that, that, um, that uh, quote, Sure. The, he says the upstart crow is beautified with our feathers, and he's a playwright. So the pro Shakespeare people, uh, you call them the pro Stratford group. Mm -hmm. um, they suggest that what what he's what Green is talking about is he's he's poking fun at a common actor who is deigning to even attempt to write plays, which you know among playwrights is far more important than acting. Anybody can act, but it really takes something to to write a play. At least that's what they thought at the time, and um, that he's taking a shot at him for that. Yeah, and we should point out that uh, being an actor back then and being a part of the theater was not like it is today. It wasn't some uh, uh, revered position. It was sort of, you know, body plays and common people were into this kind of thing. So it wasn't, mm -hmm. uh, when he, he says he was just an actor, that's a pretty big diss. Right. So the the last thing that we have, I guess the last documentation, although there's other stuff that's been turned up, they, um, they uh, did archaeological expeditions on his house. I think his house has been 
um, under ownership of a public trust since like the 19th century. And um, they've, they've carried out archaeological um, examinations of it. And they found that he, he went back and forth between London uh-huh. and Stratford. Um, they, so they know stuff about him like that. But as far as like documentation goes, the last piece of documentation we have comes in 1616, uh, which is his will that he wrote. And then a few months later, he died. And the last, I guess the last last piece of documentation is his tombstone, which in and of itself is curious because his tombstone contains a curse on it, but not his name. Yeah, is that the one uh, with the quote? Yeah, the, the, it's a curse. He's saying, like, don't dig me up or you're going to be cursed. Yeah, it says, good friend, for Jesus' sake, forbear to dig the dust enclosed here. Blessed be the man who spares these stones and cursed be he who moves my bones. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people point to that as uh, poor writing and saying, well, Shakespeare was a great writer, wouldn't have written this kind of uh, shabby curse. Right. And other people say, like, who said Shakespeare even wrote that necessarily? This this is a good instructive example of, like, kind of the yeah. back and forth between <laughs> totally. these people. Right? This is terrible writing. Who said Shakespeare wrote it? And then the anti-Shakespeare um, crew says, well, of course he wrote it because who else would just th- not think to put his name on his own tombstone? Right. And the other ones just put their head in their hands and just start crying. And it just goes downhill from there. But that's a really good example of like the, the just kind of like the people will jump on any single thing that they possibly can and often interpret it one way or the or the other. So one thing, one single thing provides evidence for both sides. It's that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, totally. Um, another thing that people point to is the fact that of, you know, we, we don't have a lot of like letters and papers and things like that because his uh, family line uh, ended in 1670. I think uh, he had a granddaughter, Elizabeth Barnard, that died without mm-hmm. bearing children. Right. So most of his stuff basically lost as far as family possessions and things like that. Um, people do point to the will at times and say, well, in his will, you know, he leaves certain things, but like there's never any mention of any manuscripts. Um, and, and again, this is all like, it's a little weird maybe, but none of this is proof. Um, and, you know, through the personal records that we do have in those 500 references, like none of them really reference him like manuscripts and him writing things. Right. That's what's most compelling to me is that when you put together the um, documentation about his life that we know, it's clear he's involved in the theater. He's an actor. We get that. That's, yeah. That comes through loud and clear. What doesn't come through that isn't documented at all is him as a writer and that that thing about the will, the fact that if you look at the wills and um, and bequeathments of um, other writers of the time, um, you can find evidence that they were writers. They like leave books to other people that um, they're um, they they leave unfinished manuscripts that stay in the family uh, for for generations. Yeah, and. Um, it is very curious. His will is very curious. But the fact that his personal stuff was just lost to history because his granddaughter was the end of the family line, that actually holds up because other um, great authors of, say, the same age or of any age, a yeah. lot of the reason that their personal effects and papers are um, still still around is because their family home was passed down from generation to generation to generation. Right. And there was a long enough period of time for the importance of that writer to become clear. And so other people came in and said, can we have your great, great, great grandfather's personal effects? Um, We want to put them in this museum. There's enough time. There wasn't enough time. There's only 70 years between the death of Shakespeare and the end of his family line. And he didn't become widely popular until the, I think, middle of the 18th century. So he was kind of a victim of that. And that bo- both of those, to me, provide really good evidence for why there isn't documentation of yeah. his writing, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the will, and by the way, we, uh, the Atlantic has a great, great, pretty deep dive article as they do mm-hmm. on this, which provided a lot of the supplementary information that we got. Um, but by, they, by Elizabeth Winkler. Yeah, from Elizabeth 2019. Winkler. Great read. Um, one of the things that Winkler points out and other people have pointed out on the will as well is like Shakespeare wrote a lot about um, music 
And I think there were 300 musical terms in all of his plays, mm-hmm. uh, mention of 26 musical instruments. And like in his will, he didn't, he didn't even have a lute to pass down to anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you said, didn't have books even, like a library that he wanted to give. And, you know, again, this is not proof necessarily of, uh, necessarily of anything, but it's all of this stuff has added up over the years to enough for people to arise to, uh, like, get suspicious about it, I think. Exactly. You want to take a break, a breather, I guess you could call it? Yeah, let's take a let's take a breather. Let's take five. All right, game off. Let's pause here to talk more about Monopoly Go. Because in Monopoly Go, you can team up with your friends for timed tournaments where you work together to build up each other's boards. It's very nice. That's right. And the more you win together, the more awesome prizes you unlock. And there's so much to get. I'm talking about unique stickers that you can trade with friends to complete albums for big prizes, cool new playing pieces to travel the boards with, or hilarious emojis for taunting friends when you smash their buildings or heist their vaults. Plus, Monopoly Go feels new and exciting every day with constantly changing tournaments and challenges, like digging for treasure or a robot pachinko machine. And there's always new timed events that help you win big, like massive multipliers for everything you win or rent frenzies. That's right. There's always something fun to discover in Monopoly Go. So get off the bench and go download it now for free on Google Play or the App Store. Game on! Hey, everybody, it's time you heard about Squarespace. Squarespace has the tools you need to create and sell your own website, whether it's an online course or custom merch. Squarespace has you covered. That's right. Courses is a great program. You can start with a professional layout that fits your brand, upload video lessons to teach techniques and skills, and tailor your course with a powerful Fluid Engine editor. That's right. With Fluid Engine, which is a next generation website design system, by the way, it's never been easier for anyone to unlock unbreakable creativity. That's right. And don't forget the commerce side, because after that, you can charge a one time fee or you can even sell a subscription. Yeah. So turn your creativity into income with Squarespace courses. And right now, go to squarespace.com stuff for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code stuff to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Squarespace. Hey friends, if you've ever been in the market for a new home, you know home shopping can be a lot. There's so much you don't know and so much you need to know. Like, what are the neighborhoods like? What are the schools like? Who is the agent who knows the listing or neighborhood the best? And why can't all this information just be in one place? Yeah, well, now it is, everybody, on homes.com. They've got everything you need to know about the listing itself, but even better. They've got comprehensive neighborhood guides and detailed reports about local schools, and their agent directory helps you see the agent's current listings and sales history. Homes.com collaboration tools make it easier than ever to share all this information with your family. It's a whole cul-de-sac of home shopping information, all at your fingertips. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Hey friends, as every parent knows, kids seem to be everywhere all at once, and it's really tough for even the most watchful moms and dads to protect their little ones from every single thing. Yeah, Duracell understands this, and that's why they're deeply committed to lithium coin battery safety. Lithium coin batteries power a bunch of important things around people's homes, including things young children may have access to. So Duracell not only educates parents, caregivers, and medical professionals about the importance of lithium coin battery safety, they also make the only lithium coin batteries with a non-toxic bitter coating to help discourage children from swallowing them. Even Duracell's packaging is child secure and designed to avoid accidental opening because they believe their products should provide more than just power. They should also provide peace of mind. You can learn more at Duracell.com slash power safely. Available on 2032, 2025, and 2016 sizes. Uh, one thing that Ed, uh, who helped us put this together, mentions that I wanted to get your take on it. I, I didn't really think it 
had a whole lot to do with it one way or the other was Mm -hmm. all of the various misspellings of Shakespeare's name over the years. Yeah. Uh, He would sign it in different ways. He would um, abbreviate it in different ways. There are documents with, I mean, it looks like 15 different ways of spelling Shakespeare, Mm -hmm. everything from shacks with an X peer uh, to spear as in something you would jab somebody with. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's misspelled all over the place. And I just kind of took that as, you know, people misspelled things a lot back then. There weren't, you know, there weren't necessarily records that you could go look at very easily. So you might just take a, a guess at how to spell a name. And then it was on the record. And so I didn't really think that factored in much. Did you? I didn't. And the impression I have is that all the different spellings are easily explained away from just the era, like you just said, and that the people who clomp onto that are actually looking into them to, to find, like, hidden right. meaning and codes to right. it. So I think, like, the different the spellings clompers. of the names is, um, it's about a, yeah, it's about as big a boondoggle as you're going to find in the in the Shakespeare authorship argument, I think. All right, so we'll cast that aside. Well, hold uh, on, before we do, I want to point out my favorite abbreviation. Okay. <laughs> which one? I think I, well, let me look. I bet you I know which one, but go okay. ahead. Okay, put it, Put it back in the deck. Yeah, it's back in the deck. Okay. It is Wilm Shack P. Yeah, that's <laughs> is that the it's, one? It stands out pretty blatantly. S-H-A-K-P. I love <laughs> yeah. it. Shack. <laughs> Hello, Wilm Shack. It's not a really good hotel check-in name, but it's still no. worth mentioning, I think. <laughs> that's pretty good. Um, so like we mentioned, sort of what's at the root of a lot of these theories is uh, what Ed, I think, rightly calls elitism, mm-hmm. uh, which is how could this guy, even, you know, educated up to 13, how could he have known about all this stuff? How could he have known about military exploits? And, you know, if you read Shakespeare's plays, which if you're an English major, you have to read a lot of them. There, there's a, a a lot going on in these plays about a lot of different stuff. He didn't write about just kind of one kind of thing. So it implies like a really deep breadth of knowledge about a lot of things. And not just different things as it relates to England, different things as it relates to entirely different lands. Oh, yeah. Like think about where a lot of his stuff takes place is in Italy. Yeah. Um, and as far as anyone knows, Shakespeare didn't go to Italy. Although, remember, there's that lost year, eight-year period. Yeah. They call them the lost years. It's entirely possible he went to Italy during that time. It's also just as possible that he didn't go to Italy during that time. We just don't know. But that is something that really stands out. And yes, there is a tremendous amount of elitism and classicism among some of the um, anti-Shakespeare group. But I think that that is, I think that dismisses a lot of their points out of hand. And they do have some really good points. They're not just cranks and crackpots. Like, they they have some pretty good evidence. You can make a case as, at least as good evidence that um, as the, the pro-Shakespeare people. Um, but the upshot of it is really kind of a compliment. They're saying, these plays are so good yeah. that Shakespeare is arguably the greatest writer who ever lived. He has such a crazy imagination. He's so funny. He has such an extensive vocabulary, such an amazing grasp of the human condition. Could it really all have been written by this man from, at the time, the country, who was educated up to 13, who came from the middle class, who may or may not have ever traveled out of England? How is that even possible? Are people born that gifted? That's ultimately, if you want to go beyond the classicism and the elitism, that's really what their argument boils down to. Yeah, I agree. And if you you don't know a lot of Shakespeare, have never really read a lot yourself— and you think, like, you're sort of in that camp, like, uh, I mean, this is kind of overrated, like, this guy. No, these plays are brilliant. And uh, there's a reason why they still make m- contemporary movies based on Shakespeare's plays mm-hmm. or inspired by Shakespeare's plays. Uh, it's because they were all genuinely brilliant. It was great, great stuff. And uh, what you need is a really good uh, teacher to kind of walk you through it because it's, yeah. it's tough to read. And we had, um, we had some good ones at Georgia, at University of Georgia. I had one, I can't remember his name. God, I can picture him in my head. He was so great. Todd probably Gack. <laughs> someone, <laughs> no, it was Wilm. <laughs> Wilm Shackby. Shackby. Um, <laughs> oh, I wish I could remember his name. I bet you someone will write in, in the, uh, mid nineties who the Did great Did he play Shakespeare... a harpsichord? 
No. <laughs> oh, okay. well, no, I had a, a classics professor who, oh, really? um, who played a harpsichord, yeah. This was, you know, you had to take Shakespeare 1 and 2. Those were the only required English classes as, a, as an English major. Mm-hmm. So that kind of shows the importance. But what he did was he sat us down, and we read the plays out loud in class. And after every, you know, short bit, he would say, well, here's what's going on, and here's what he's saying nice. here. Man, you were very and, lucky. Yeah, and once you, once you hear that, and you're like, oh, these are very contemporary stories, and that's why they still... Uh, carry such weight today is because they were brilliant stories, but stories that were very relatable even now. It's not it's not highfalutin stuff. Uh, it's just it was written at a time where it seems that way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because we don't really speak in you know Renaissance English anymore, right. so it seems it might as well be Greek to us. Um, yeah. But yeah, it, it it was intended for common audiences. Like the average person would laugh or cry at those at those plays. And I think also it like really kind of supports your point that four hundred years later, those plays can still make people today laugh and yeah. cry. Like yep. they still hold up. I guess is what you're saying. And um, have you ever heard of Sister Wendy? No. She is, uh, she's a nun. I don't believe she's still with us. And I think in the 90s, she made this series of videos where she just went around to museums around the world and explained paintings to you in, oh, wow. in a way that I would love to find a Sister uh-huh. Wendy of Shakespeare. I'm sure there's somebody out there. But you could do a lot worse to, of killing several hours watching Sister Wendy explain paintings because she, awesome. she had a, like a natural gift at just not only understanding what she was looking at, but explaining it really uh, understandably. I love that. And I think in Sister Wendy's case and my professor uh, Shackby, <laughs> it's, it, it comes from a place of um, they have such great admiration and they want to, they really want people to understand this stuff right. who might ordinarily go like, well, I don't get it. I don't get paintings like this or I don't get plays like this. I hate art. <laughs> uh, so should we get in, speaking of art, great segue. Uh, Thank you. Thank should we get into this mess of the the bust of Shakespeare? Yeah, I mean it's another. It's very much like his tombstone, where people are like, "It means this." No, it means that. You know. Yeah. So there's a bust, an effigy of Shakespeare, uh, inside the church there in Stratford, and there's been a lot of controversy over this thing because part of it is not necessarily like was he the author, although it does play into that, but sort of like. What, what did he look like? And how do we know that's what he looked like? Like, we've all seen the picture. Uh, and there's like this one painting and this one bust. And that's kind of where everything comes from. And some people say, this was done after he was dead. Like, we really don't know that that's what he looked like. Mm-hmm. Um, I think just a couple of years ago, this professor and expert made a pretty good case that beyond most reasonable doubt that it was actually done, I think she said it was highly likely, Um, Professor Orlin said it's highly likely that it was done while he was alive Mm. and that he commissioned it because she thinks she knows who did the bust and that that person lived near him and uh, was a regular at the Globe and kind of put all these clues together. Uh, But other people, some people say it was his dad uh, and not him because of this whole sack of grain argument. Yeah, the, so there it, there was an etching that was made of the bust within some period of time after the bust was erected, but before it was altered. So the bust has definitely been altered. Yeah. And it looks like one way you can interpret this this thing at the bottom, this puffy thing that's at, that's at, at the hands of the bust, the effigy, um, as a sack of grain. I don't know if it were a sack of grain why anyone would ever present it in that position. Right. <laughs> It doesn't make any sense. And it's so a what weird the, looking. Right. So what the, the anti-Shakespeare, anti-Stratford people are saying is like, yeah, it's his dad. It's it's not him. Um, or if it is Shakespeare, he was known for his grain-carrying skills, not his right. writing skills. <laughs> <laughs> and the pro-Stratford people are like, don't be ridiculous. This is obviously a pillow. Right. And at some point, somebody did revise the bus. So it is... Un, uh, unequivocally a pillow. Like, there's just no way to, to mistake it. And it's not so much a pillow as it is like a hand rest for him to write on because yeah. he's got a piece of paper on it and a quill in his other hand. But the the anti-Shakespeare people jump on that and say, like, see, it was altered to, to fit this, um, to cover up this conspiracy later on. Yeah, exactly. And, and that quill has been stolen and replaced, I think, so many times over the years that now... I don't know if it currently has the quill. 
or if it has the quill and it's now behind glass. Oh, that could that's a good way to get around it, sure. I'm not really sure, but uh, you know, that became a, you know, obviously something you could just snatch out of his hand <laughs> and you've got Shakespeare's quill on your on your door. Speaking of um being snatched, uh, apparently that curse on his tombstone didn't work because they did a scan of it um, on the 400th anniversary of his death and found that at least his skull was missing, if not all of his remains. Oh, really? Yeah, isn't that interesting? So somebody out there has Shakespeare's skull in their personal collection. It's probably Rosencrantz or Guildenstern. Uh, That's I like a great that Shakespeare reference. joke. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> There's some people out there that were like, nailed it. <laughs> Good. Uh, another thing, as far as evidence goes, is um, the first folio, which is, uh, I think it was the first collection uh, that they put in print of all of Shakespeare's plays, including um, 18 that had never been in print before. Mm-hmm. And there was a, uh, I guess it was it a foreword written by a guy named Ben Johnson, who was yeah. a rival of Shakespeare's. He was kind of known as a jealous, um, sort of argumentative guy. Uh, but he calls uh, Shakespeare the swan of Avon and is sort of uh, very laudatory in this foreword. But I think you found stuff later on where he was kind of like, mm, I had my fingers crossed the whole time. <laughs> kind of, yeah. So the pro-Stratford people who believe Shakespeare was Shakespeare say, look, man, this guy was known as a rival, a friendly rival, but a real rival, really critical, like had a biting, biting criticism and sense of, of humor, and right. also was not one to just be like, um, to, to just bow to nobility or privilege or wealth or status, right? So uh, if this guy is saying that that Shakespeare, the swan of Avon, which places this man at Stratford-on-Avon, because Ben Johnson is calling him that, that proves that Shakespeare was Shakespeare. The anti-Shakespeare camp says, like you said, Ben Johnson had his fingers crossed the whole time, and that really what he was doing was providing cover for this larger, essentially, conspiracy of people who actually were Shakespeare. He was right. lending his his renown to it. Um, neither one really makes sense. I mean, unless Ben Johnson had, like, a complete change of heart, um, it, it just doesn't quite add up. But then also the idea that he, he would provide that cover for a group of noble people um, right. seems unlikely as well, too. Yeah, I agree. Uh, one of the first public doubters uh, in the 1800s was a woman named Delia Bacon, uh, no relation to Francis Bacon, um, although you may think so because one person that Delia Bacon put forward as one of the authors mm-hmm. was Francis Bacon. Uh, Delia Bacon was an American, uh, was a writer, uh, had a sort of a long life before she got into um, kind of hating Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah, hating him. Like, really didn't like Shakespeare and really wanted to prove that he was not the author. And um, her idea was that it was Francis Bacon, uh, Walter Raleigh, and I think maybe some other people too, who were these very well-regarded people of you know philosophy and politics and science mm-hmm. who would not have been allowed to put forth these plays and what these plays, what they really were, were not even meant for entertainment or for the stage. They were meant to be sort of biting criticisms of uh, all kinds of various things that these gentlemen could not put their name on. Yeah, so there's, yeah, either they couldn't put their name on it because they would be executed as basically treasonous to the crown Mm -hmm. because they were, you know, putting forth the idea of um, social reform and, you know, women's rights and all sorts of stuff, taking pot shots at the nobility. Um, Or there's another theory called the stigma of print that was introduced in, I think, the 1870s. And that was that they just uh, just out of um, noble nobility, noblesse, Mm -hmm. I guess, they wouldn't deign to have their stuff published. Mm. It would would erode their social reputation, even accepting the idea that they would be um, beheaded for treason. So there are a couple of reasons that that somebody like um, Francis Bacon would have to cover up his identity if he were actually Shakespeare. And Mm -hmm. that same stigma of print and um, political cover argument gets extended to other people beyond Bacon, too. Yeah, and that, you know, it makes a little bit of sense. 
Um, as far as Delia Bacon, she uh, was able to talk Ra- uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson into uh, basically kind of buying her story. And he arranged for her sponsorship, basically, to go to England to kind of research this. Mm-hmm. Apparently in England, she she was kind of on record saying that she didn't research history books or records and things like that. She believed <laughs> that the the proof was sort of in the plays themselves. Yeah. Uh, and in the in the text, basically, like with these clues. Um, apparently, she used to go to Shakespeare's tomb a lot and and kind of just, you know, hang out there and like try to convince the, I guess, the tomb keeper, whoever, you know, takes care of the cemetery. The crypt keeper. Yeah, the crypt keeper. <laughs> I didn't want to say it. Uh, to be let in and like uh, almost got in at one point, apparently. But I think she got <laughs> sick and couldn't. And yeah. but she thought that the you know, the deep secret was within that tomb. Yeah, she kind of kicked off the nuttier um, camp of the the um, questioning of of Shakespeare. In addition to kicking off the whole thing, she she put like kind of a nutty sheen to it, like the idea that you could get your answers just from reading the plays, right. that the clues were in there. The thing is, is Francis Bacon was known to to amuse himself by including, you know, hidden codes and in, in messages in his writings. So if it was Francis Bacon, that's not that much of a stretch. And supposedly Mark Twain and some friends um, did actually turn up. If you read the first folio, mm-hmm. there is, uh, I guess, some series of lines that spell out Francisco Bacono. <laughs> <laughs> it's right? pretty good. I mean, it, here's the thing, though. It, Francis Bacon wrote a lot about a lot of stuff, but uh-huh. not a lot of fiction and prose. Or um, didn't he? <laughs> right. No evidence that he ever wrote any kind of plays. Or right. did he? Right. There was this other thing that kind of came along. So Delia Bacon is widely regarded as the person who kicked off the it was Shakespeare, Shakespeare uh, idea. Um, But supposedly there was a a person who came before her, James Wilmot, who in 1781 sat down to um, write a biography of Mm -hmm. Shakespeare and did all the research in London and Stratford-on-Avon and um, was – astonished by the lack of documentation that Shakespeare had written those plays and started to suspect it and that he kicked it off. The thing is, mm-hmm. the the anti-Shakespeare side has been accused of making those documents up, of forging those documents to support Delia Bacon's Francis Bacon theory. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so they weren't discovered until 1931, which is pretty convenient. And it's entirely possible that they they were just forged. All right, should we take another break here? Yeah, let's. All right, we'll take another break. We'll talk a little bit more about whether Shakespeare wrote that stuff. All right, game off. Let's pause here to talk more about Monopoly Go. Because in Monopoly Go, you can team up with your friends for timed tournaments where you work together to build up each other's boards. It's very nice. That's right. And the more you win together, the more awesome prizes you unlock. And there's so much to get. I'm talking about unique stickers that you can trade with friends to complete albums for big prizes, cool new playing pieces to travel the boards with, or hilarious emojis for taunting friends when you smash their buildings or heist their vaults. Plus, Monopoly Go feels new and exciting every day with constantly changing tournaments and challenges, like digging for treasure or a robot pachinko machine. And there's always new timed events that help you win big, like massive multipliers for everything you win or rent frenzies. That's right. There's always something fun to discover in Monopoly Go. So get off the bench and go download it now for free on Google Play or the App Store. Game on! Hey friends, if you've ever been in the market for a new home, you know home shopping can be a lot. There's so much you don't know and so much you need to know. Like, what are the neighborhoods like? What are the schools like? Who is the agent who knows the listing or neighborhood the best? And why can't all this information just be in one place? Yeah, well, now it is, everybody, on Homes.com. They've got everything you need to know about the listing itself, but even better. 
They've got comprehensive neighborhood guides and detailed reports about local schools, and their agent directory helps you see the agent's current listings and sales history. Homes.com collaboration tools make it easier than ever to share all this information with your family. It's a whole cul-de-sac of home shopping information, all at your fingertips. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Hey friends, as every parent knows, kids seem to be everywhere all at once, and it's really tough for even the most watchful moms and dads to protect their little ones from every single thing. Yeah, Duracell understands this, and that's why they're deeply committed to lithium coin battery safety. Lithium coin batteries power a bunch of important things around people's homes, including things young children may have access to. So Duracell not only educates parents, caregivers, and medical professionals about the importance of lithium coin battery safety, they also make the only lithium coin batteries with a non-toxic bitter coating to help discourage children from swallowing them. Even Duracell's packaging is child secure and designed to avoid accidental opening because they believe their products should provide more than just power. They should also provide peace of mind. You can learn more at Duracell.com slash power safely. Available on 2032, 2025, and 2016 sizes. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. So one more thing about Delia Bacon before we wrap it up. Like you said, she was a a, a good writer. Um, and her exhaustive examination of the texts of Shakespeare's plays resulted in a 620-page book. Yeah. The, the philosophy of the plays of Shakespeare unfolded. And um, she's often credited with, with basically prefiguring, if not kicking off, the idea of literary criticism, of close yeah. readings of stuff to find other meanings. And she was doing it to expose noble people as Shakespeare, but but she was really good at it. And people said, well, hey, maybe we should do this for other stuff too. Yeah. And like, ironically, because she kind of, um, I mean, you know, various tawdry accounts say she was driven to madness. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure how accurate that is, but it did seem like it pretty much consumed her in the latter stages of her life and that her family was kind of embarrassed and stuff like that. Right. So Francis Bacon was um, not the only person put forth. And there's probably, as far as like um, uh, believers go, somebody who at least rivals, if not eclipses him. And that would be um, the, the 17th Earl of Oxford, Edward de Vere, Right. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole uh, there's a whole camp and a whole other, and you know we can't get into this too uh, too much in detail, but there's a whole movement that says out of the eighty people, like we really think it was the seventeenth Earl of Oxford. Yeah, there's it's called the Oxfordian theory of yeah. Shakespearean authorship, and there is you know um, some stuff to it. He was a poet. Um, which Ed points out, that's so much for the stigma of print. Um, and that also, uh, you can compare his poetry and in, like some specific works of poetry to some of Shakespeare's poetry um, and see some real comparisons. But um, as far as I can tell, the, the questions or the, um, the similarities end there, um, if I'm not mistaken, like, and that... To me, it, it was the sixth Earl of Derby who has a little more, um, a little more to offer. Oh, really? Oh, um, no, I didn't see there much was, about Derby. 
There was one other thing. So Derby has his own group, the Derbyites. Right. <laughs> of course they do, man. This is what I mean. It's an onion. It's a blooming onion. So there was one other thing about De Vere that is pretty suspicious. There were two narrative poems that Shakespeare dedicated to a man who was raised in the same household as De Vere. And from what anybody could tell, there's no reason Shakespeare would know this person. Oh. And why would Shakespeare dedicate two poems mm-hmm. to this this noble nobleman he didn't know? Um, but De Vere certainly knew him. He was he was basically raised alongside him like a brother. So that, along with the biographical reading, the close reading, looking for parallels between De Vere's life and Shakespeare's plays, are what kind of back up the Oxfordian theories. Interesting, because that uh, Christopher Marlowe is another one who mm-hmm. is a, a, a contemporary and friend of Shakespeare's, and they collaborated and they influenced one another. And this, the details around Marlowe's death are uh, hinky enough to where some people thought, or at least the you know the the conspiracy is that is that he faked his death uh, because he was going to going to be executed by the crown and continued to write and then used his friend uh, Billy Shakespeare as a front <laughs> to continue to get those plays out. Um, I'm not really sure about this because, I don't know, that's, that, it's just a little far-fetched if you ask me. Well, yeah, if, and if, you're, if you're supposing that Marlowe faked his death in order to continue writing, you've mm-hmm. now got a conspiracy theory wrapped in a conspiracy right. theory. <laughs> Yeah, maybe that's you what know? bothers me. Yeah, But it's interesting because, you know, Marlowe is a pretty interesting dude in himself. Supposedly, he may have been a secret agent for the crown. Yeah. Um, he was an atheist. He was his own uh, playwright. People loved him as a playwright at the time. Yeah. Um, but he was no Shakespeare. <laughs> like, literally, he's probably the flimsiest person you could attribute um, Shakespeare's writings to because Marlowe was gloomy and super atheist, and and um, he was uh, his plays just didn't have that same kind of humanism and um, funniness that Shakespeare's plays had. And yeah. also, why wouldn't Marlowe just write these plays under his own name? He had no reason to write these plays under different names. Yeah, agreed. Uh, there have been people that put forth the idea that the there were several different women that might have been the real authors because uh, women were not allowed to write plays at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, 80% of the plays written during this time were anonymous and no author was listed. And a lot of people said, hey, a lot of these were written by women and they just couldn't put their name on it. Um, many of Shakespeare's plays and ideas are very progressive. Um, I, it's kind of a, kind of a, I don't know about flimsy, but it kind of demeans Shakespeare a bit to say that like, well, it had to be a woman because they were so progressive about women like taking a stand, uh, when in fact Shakespeare seemingly very much thought that way himself. Right, like uh, how could a man write women like this? Come on. Yeah, um, there's a woman named Mary Sidman Herbert who has a whole foundation that's trying to prove that she wrote. Um, kind of the worst of the internet happened about seven years ago when you get these memes that are just full of false stuff mm-hmm. and then everyone starts spreading them around. Oh, yeah. Uh, there was a meme in 2015, went all over social media, that just had the picture of this black woman and said, this is Amelia Bassano. Uh, she really wrote Shakespeare's stuff. She was not allowed to... Uh, be a published author because she was a black woman at a time where she was suppressed and all this stuff. Um, None of this stuff was true. Um, First of all, she was maybe Moroccan. She was definitely not of African descent. Oh, I saw she was um, Venetian. No, I saw that she was uh, Moroccan and had some Italian in her. So that makes a little sense. But she was definitely not of African descent. Um, She was a published author, so... (laughs) The, the whole notion that she wasn't allowed to publish things wasn't right. She was right. Uh, kind of a well-known uh, poet, I think, at the time. Mm-hmm. So this kind of thing gets passed along the internet, and then you know half the people that see it just say, oh, well, look at that. Shakespeare was, <laughs> was, was, was all written by this lady back then. Problem um, solved. Yeah, problem solved. And that's just not how it works. One of the other things I saw that, um, and I think the, the people who are like, Shakespeare was a woman— are like, well, okay, if we're, if we're starting to question Shakespeare's authorship, we can't ignore this whole group of people who yeah. had every reason to hide their identity as authors of these plays because they were women and they weren't yeah, allowed sure. to do this kind of stuff. Um, so 
there was a, a critic who in 1593 wrote of a um, – who praised a gentlewoman who was writing some amazing plays and sonnets. And this was the year after Shakespeare pops back up um, after his lost years and when he was starting to write. Um, but that the critic said he didn't want to reveal who it was because he didn't want to basically get her in trouble. So that's what mm. some other people kind of look at and say, see, Shakespeare was a woman. Well, I mean, I think I think this theory makes a lot more sense than a lot of the others, you know, just by the sheer fact that women would not have been allowed to. So right. uh, maybe Shakespeare was progressive and decided to uh, be a front for these great works. But it reveals a, 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 a point about um, being a... a anti-Shakespeare, anti, I guess, Stratford person, is you have to, part of it is you have to explain why somebody would want to fake authorship, would want to hide behind Shakespeare's name. Yeah, what do you call that? A, uh, a motive. <laughs> yeah, you got means, motive, and opportunity. You put those three together, you got your Shakespeare. <laughs> well, that's what I mean about the, the maybe women wrote them. I mean, there was definite motive there. Right, exactly. So there was one other thing that happened. I mean, a lot of stuff happened over the course of this hundred, almost 200 years now um, of questioning Shakespeare's authorship. Back in 1987, a um, Oxfordian, um, Charlton Ogburn, mm -hmm. got the um, at least three sitting Supreme Court justices, John Paul Stevens, William Brennan, and Harry Blackman, to hold a mock trial to determine if Shakespeare actually was the author of Shakespeare's plays. And they did on C-SPAN. They had they held like a trial and heard the evidence, and Shakespeare had his own attorney arguing for him. And um, uh, it was pretty interesting, but they they it went two to two to one, I think, in favor of, sh of Shakespeare from Stratford as the author. But they did like real research and stuff? It wasn't just like a, you know, a yeah. stunt? No. It was, so the Supreme Court justices were kind of taking it tongue-in-cheek, but I got the impression that Charlton Ogburn was like, yes, he's right. finally <laughs> going to prove it definitively one way or another, and it didn't even fall in his favor. Interesting. Yeah, it is interesting what people did in the 80s on C-SPAN. Uh, <laughs> uh, I got a few more little things here from that Atlantic article mm -hmm. uh, that point to his authorship as being genuine. Uh, one is that he had a narrative poem called Venus and Adonis that was a very popular poem at the time uh, that was put in print. Uh, and it was printed by a gentleman named Richard Field, who apparently went to school with him at Stratford. Mm -hmm. So that's a that's a pretty good little hint. Okay. Um, he was written about at the time. So it's not like he was never known until his death and then all of a sudden became super popular. Like he died a rich man and uh, was written about with uh, by literary critics um, at the time and, and entertainment and play critics. So there were contemporaneous um, criticisms of his writing while he was still living, mm -hmm. which, which is a pretty, you know, pretty big clue that he probably wrote this stuff. Although it is, not proof. No, because those people could be, they, they went and saw a play by Shakespeare. That doesn't yeah. mean that they met Shakespeare and talked right. to Shakespeare about the authorship <laughs> yeah. of the plays. And leaned over his shoulder while he wrote it. <laughs> right. Proof. Uh, the other last thing that I saw in that Atlantic article, this is the one, or actually this was in a, uh, this was the golden bullet from that video. Oh, that was I it? Saw, okay, good. Was Shakespeare was apparently concerned that um, his dad's reputation sort of and the family's reputation suffered later in life because of financial problems that his dad had. Mm -hmm. And he really wanted to kind of restore their name and get a coat of arms made, which is, uh, you could, you know, it's like you could be a true gentleman if you had a coat of arms. And apparently it's a really long process. They don't just hand them out to anybody. You got to mm -hmm. like have a certain level of achievement to get a coat of arms. So he went through this big, long process and had... <laughs> he went all Barry Lyndon on there. <laughs> oh man, what a movie. Um, he had a couple of different men in the Herald's office who defended Shakespeare's right to have a coat of arms because other people were saying, who is this guy even? Like, he came from not much and he shouldn't have a coat of arms. And one of the guys who defended him was a man named William Camden, mm -hmm. who uh, this guy in the video referred to as one of the most learned men in all of England. Oh, wow. Uh, he was actually Ben Johnson's schoolmaster. And apparently just knew everything on happening on the literary scene, inside and out. And in one of his books, 
He uh, it was called the remains of a greater history. He talks about all the great writers of the time, mm-hmm. and he lists William Shakespeare of Avon mm. uh, in that book. So he said that's the golden bullet. Uh, again, if it's just a front, it's still no real proof of authorship. No, it's not. I mean, like this guy could just be playing along, lending his his, his or didn't considerable know, you know. weight. Yeah, that's another one too. Like that's the thing. Like the anti-Stratfordians have caused the pro-Stratfordians to actually defend their position. And in doing so, it's kind of revealed that both of them are kind of on shaky ground. It's almost just a matter of belief. Do you want to believe that one man was that brilliant and and that talented and gifted? Um, Or can can you just not believe that? It just doesn't make any sense to you. So it was a cabal of noble people who were um, trying to advance political reform and hiding behind William Shakespeare and paying him off with maybe – family crests and money and, and fame right. uh, to to let let them use his name as their you know the playwright. Yeah. Uh they also say like where he was from, there was some regional slang that was very specific to where he was from that was used. Uh there was in Taming of the Shrew. Uh he mentions these Latin phrases that are in uh, specifically from a a Latin book that apparently was known to have been used at his school, at his grammar school in Stratford. Uh-huh. So, again, there's all these little hints and clues. Uh, all of it kind of gave me a headache. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I was like, can we just, like, love these plays? Uh, right, exactly. That's exactly right. That's the ultimate point. Let's just love the plays. People okay. get serious about this, though. Yeah, they definitely do. I mean, it's pretty interesting. And it's I mean, I get it. kind of fun to watch from the outside, too. Yeah. Uh, you got anything else? No, we could go on all day, but totally, we'd never, we'd never get anywhere. There's like ten things I'm leaving on the table, so we just got to keep moving on, right? All right, let's keep do it. on keeping on, Chuck. Uh, if you want to know more about Shakespearean authorship, there is a giant gaping rabbit hole you can jump down on the internet and uh, say sayonara to all of your other pursuits. And since I said sayonara, it's time for listener mail. Uh, I'm going to call this just came in over the wire. I thought it was kind of funny from our friend Steven in Kagoshima, Japan, about eating eating squid. Mm -hmm. It says, love the show, fellas. Uh, Reason not to be so touchy, though, about eating squid. They are child murdering sea vermin. (laughs) He said the reason squid die after they mate is a survival adaptation, because if not, they would eat the eggs and newly hatched squid from themselves and other squid in the spawning areas. Huh. Uh, Squidly Diddly is an <laughs> infanticidal maniac and should be cooked and eaten, albeit sustainably, of course. <laughs> uh, so that's the argument, is that these squids deserve to be eaten because they would be eating themselves if not for this uh, adaptation. So uh, he also says, tell Josh not to eat uncooked squid. Uh, that okay. is not great. All right. And uh, kind regards from Stephen in Kagoshima, Japan, a squid haven and a squid ink pasta destination. Stephen, that was a really great eye-opening email. I may have seen the light. I'm not sure yet. I'll have to get back to you. Okay? Okay. (laughs) Thank you for responding to that, Stephen. Sure. Uh, If you want to be like Stephen and get in touch with us and send us a potentially eye-opening email... You can do that. Send it off to StuffPodcast at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch strata coaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.
Hey, if you haven't heard of Visible, well, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. Use promo code STUFF. 20 to receive $20 off your first month for listening to this podcast. Switch now at Visible.com. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month. Today's episode is brought to you by Altoids because, let's face it, unraveling the mysteries of the universe is tough work. But with Altoids, your breath will be stronger than a black hole's gravitational pull, more intense than an alien abduction, and more reliable than your phone's battery during a podcast marathon. When it comes to needing intense freshness, Altoids have you covered. Altoids are stronger than your favorite conspiracy theory, more intense than the latest true crime docuseries, and more reliable than a Bigfoot sighting. They're not just mints, they're curiously strong mints. Find Altoids in the checkout aisle. Grab your tin today. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. 